This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And sitting in Mike Hogan's seat, Mike is gone once again, but we brought with us a guest. We have David Sims. Uh, hello. This is more of a throne than a seat. Right? <laughs> That's true. As Mike <laughs> demands. It, it's in Mike's contract. <laughs> right, right. Uh, David, we brought you on both because you're our friend and you oh. talk about movies with us all the time anyway. Yeah. And this is the week of the release of Tim Burton's Dumbo. And at this point, uh, thanks to the Blank Check miniseries, I think you're the world expert on Tim Burton. Is I that the title you've given yourself? I certainly yourself? had to watch all 19 Tim Ooh. Burton films. Uh, blank Check, for those who don't know, and, and mm, shame on podcast. you, is a, is a podcast that David, uh, who is a film critic at The Atlantic, does with Griffin Newman, an actor, where they discuss director's filmographies. So basically each season, quote unquote, right. is structured around one director. Career, yeah. and you're currently doing the big daddy of them all, Tim oh, Burton. It's, it's, it's a slog because the arc of Tim Burton's career is up and then down, basically. And then down. Quality wise. And then down. <laughs> yeah, and then down and down. And then there's right. an elephant. And then there's an elephant. Yeah, an elephant who goes up, up, up into the sky. Uh, so we'll talk about Dumbo later in the show, but we want to do just some general news catch up first. Uh, we're going to hit some of the Oscar-y trailers that have debuted in recent weeks to figure out what they might have in store. Uh, but first, uh, at least I, and I know Joanna because she was in the room, spent a good chunk of yesterday watching Apple try to convince us that they are the future of Hollywood. It's mostly about television, their their bid, at least so far. But Joanna, since you were in the room, uh, what did you learn at what you kind of described as the church of Apple? Um, yeah, you know, it was it was a fascinating thing to watch. That I was there with like a bunch of other TV journalists, where you know we've we've all been together at TCA. We've seen this kind of thing before, the Television Critics Association press tour. But Apple's like, okay, but what if we did it our way and made you sit through this pitch about a credit card first? And that's fine, like whatever. <laughs> but um, so much applause for a credit card. It was really surreal. Yeah, but like uh, you know, it, it was it, it was fascinating and weird to be on that campus to see all that Apple culture sort of try to meet the Hollywood culture and what was interesting um, and everyone watching at home realizes too is like they didn't really have a lot 
to actually show us. And so they trotted out their stars, but they had just a really brief sizzle reel of the actual TV that they're going to be showing. They didn't have actually even a lot of detail about what their platform will be. They had some information, but not really relevant information like, oh, I don't know, pricing and stuff like that. So, you know, Apple Apple getting into the streaming platform, aggressively into the streaming platform business, Apple trying to make the argument that they will have original program that will rival Netflix and make their their platform, you know, a can't miss. I don't know that I walked away convinced. I did walk away excited that they had Oprah, but I don't think you can be in the same room as Oprah and not walk away excited, right? So like Oprah was there and I was like, oh my God, this is great. And then as soon as she walks on stage, you're like, <laughs> what did I actually just see? Um, so yeah. And then I think one thing worth mentioning and I know David had a great write-up on The Atlantic about this as well, yeah. but like, I, I think one thing worth mentioning overall is how this flavors the earlier conversation we were having about Spielberg and Netflix. Because it's not as if it's a secret that Spielberg was doing work for Apple TV. Like This has been announced like two years ago. Like It's been in the trays and stuff like that. But I think seeing him up there, because he was there on the Apple campus for the first time, as he said, on stage. And he was the main part of this big sort of glossy black and white trailer that they played of just like talking heads, talking about what film is or something. Um, that Spielberg is so closely associated with this streaming platform makes the fact that he was going, I don't know, so hard or however you want to put it against Netflix with the Academy in this recent conversation we were having, it just, it just casts it in a slightly different light, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. The whole thing was fascinating, but also I think kind of a debacle in some ways. Like, like don't do this until you have stuff to actually show us, until you actually have pricing, like you said, Joanna. And also, like, I mean, I made this joke at the same time on Twitter that Jim Poniewozik from The Times did. It was like, Apple, this is just an upfront. This is just upfront. And it's... It's uh, upfronts for those who don't Plus know. Plus a credit like, card yeah, upfronts well, as well. Right, 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 yeah. Where like basically you just like this is the new season and it's just the thing for advertisers to kind of. But like you know having these big stars come out and talk, it was like okay, but like the the, the patter was really kind of trite and boring the way to describe the shows. It just was like this is your new sexy revolutionary thing. This is something we've seen so many times before, and the shows all sounded familiar. They do. They have big stars. Yeah, like bigger than normal. Yeah. You know, that's about it, right? Something they're doing. I was talking to um, Libby Hill of Underwire about it afterwards, and she was she was a little frustrated because she was like, "It feels like they're trying to say we've got we've got all the best talent in the world. We're going to tell all the best stories, but they trotted out all these people we already know, you know, and and so they're saying like all the best stories kind of have already been told or something like that." My <laughs> understanding of what I saw is that they're. Um, you know, they've got marquee talent at the top of things, but that's really an umbrella over some other talent. So I am curious to see some of the things like Kumail and Johnny and Emily Gordon's uh, show, Little America, like what Kumail said on stage. And I will say Kumail's the only one who actually delivered his patter well. He so. has to be the only one who wrote his own patter, right? Like he sounded like a human right. and no one else did. Everyone else is like the power of a story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it tells a story, you know. <laughs> but kudos to the stand-up comedian for actually being able to stand up there and be funny. But like he... He was talking about this project and he said, you know, all of the people who wrote and directed these episodes are either immigrants or children of immigrants. This is a story. It's an anthology story, true stories of immigrants in America. And so, like, you're putting Kumail and Emily at the top of this because they're people a lot of us recognize. And then you've got other interesting talent underneath. Or, like, what Sarah Bareilles is doing with Little Voice. Maybe, which is a show about, like, New York musicians. Maybe that will be interesting. Like, maybe. But... 
Oprah is certainly nothing new. And, and as Katie pointed out, while they were doing this big glossy trailer to be like, we've got someone, you've been missing her. Here she is. She's back. She's been away from TV. And Katie's like, did she had her own network? Like, what are you talking about? Oprah, Oprah hasn't quite Sorry, been gone for TV. Like, like if Oprah, if they said we're going to have Oprah do the Oprah Winfrey show every day again. That's one thing. But Oprah's just doing docu-series for them. And I'm like, I know not to knock that. That's great. I'm, I'm excited, but like, that's not a new thing. So I don't know if, I don't know if it's just Apple doesn't understand, but what's true when you, when they show their products, you know, when they're like, okay, here's our new Apple arcade, which is a gaming system. They had a lot of information about that. You need that information to show me this other thing. You can't just dazzle me with Reese Witherspoon though, though she looked lovely, you know, like it, it was like, it was just indicative of a tech industry, not really knowing what is done here. And it's okay to not do what is done, but then you need to do something better than what they did. I guess it also is my point. makes me concerned about quality of the shows. Sure. I mean, the, the, the very, very, you know, small amount of footage that we saw looked good. Yeah. Looked expensive. I mean, Jason Momoa and Alfre Woodard in some sort of way, way, way post-apocalyptic thing. Yeah, where it's Cloud blind. Atlas, but they're blind. It's, yeah. cl- it's Cloud Atlas, but they're <laughs> or blind. Or Bird Box. It's Bird Box. Bird, Bird, Box. Box. Yeah, Bird, Bird Cloud yeah. Atlas Box. Yeah. Um, but it's like, okay. Like, I don't I don't know. I, I just I found the whole thing to be so underwhelming. It all looked a little mad libby. Like, this yeah. sort of, uh, yeah, it's a morning show, and Steve Carell is here, you know. Um, and then, like, Haley Steinfeld's Emily Dickinson, but it's going to be, like, oh, modern. Right. Brooklyn yeah. Prince is going to be, like, Harriet the Spy, but... Right, you know, not I mean, Harry at the spot. Don't right? not you Brooklyn know. Prince. No, that I love amazing. Brooklyn Prince. There's a lot of Brooklyn Prince in that sizzle reel. Yeah. The sizzle reel was like 30 percent Brooklyn Prince. <laughs> um, my take on it, which I did write about at the Atlantic, was that they they seem to be trying to be HBO. You know, rather than the Netflix thing of like we've got so much, it's more like we have stars and we have prestige, and this is going to be like, you know, a quality product worth your unspecified amount of money that we'll let you know later once we figure out how much we think people want to pay for this. Right, right. I mean, it's not just it's not just how, when we figure out what we think people are going to pay for it. Like, basically, Silicon Valley has been trying, you know, at Verizon, at Intel, have all been trying to do this. We can give you just the slim cable that you want, just the cable that you want, the live sports that you want, you know, the FX that you want, the whatever that you want without having to do the massive cable package. But there's like no way to actually do that and keep the price point any different than, uh, you know, they've tried when you negotiate. Once you like say, okay, we can give you HBO, we can give you this, we can give you that, then your price point is as high as the cable deal is. And so like, that's the thing that Apple, that's why Apple has not said how much this is going to cost because I guarantee you it's going to cost a lot. And so, you know, and so they're 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 banking on the fact that their programming is going to be must have, can't miss. But I I just got to say that like the fact that their competition is HBO, which you can get for $10 a month, or is Netflix, which you can get for I don't know how much Netflix costs right now. Um how much is a pint of milk even? I don't know. Um but like I it's it it is not something that I have a lot of faith in. Well, so. The other thing is all these services that are its rival did not launch on the back of 10 TV shows. Like people didn't subscribe to Netflix because of House of Cards. You know, they were already subscribers. Right. Because yeah. it was a DVD rental service and then it was a big streaming library. 
And you got HBO because they had like, HBO movie releases. HBO because you had cable and it has movies. Like you know, and then yeah. they started adding in original shows. Amazon, you got an Amazon Prime because you wanted free a delivery. drone to deliver deodorant to your right. house. Right. Yeah. Apple, it's <laughs> you know they they didn't say the price, but they did say this will be a you know an ad free subscription service. Apple's saying like. Pay us some money for these shows, for like these, literally for these, these particular shows. shows. Exactly. Well, do you guys see value in what they're promising that like they can have everything in one place that you can like subscribe to CBS All Access? They and already Showtime, have that. Like, that's called thing. cable television. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Amazon has that, and Apple has that. Apple is just it, Apple's version is bad. It, it, like on my Amazon TV, you can subscribe to like CBS All Access like through it, right? And then it all gets sort of like put on a landing page for you, which is fine. It's cable TV, like you know, it's sort of like a. A slightly easier to navigate version, right? And that's what the Apple thing is. Yeah, what Apple was promising was you wouldn't have to toggle between apps right. in their thing anymore. And I was like, it's not, but except if you want to go to Netflix because they don't own Netflix, right? Yeah. So yeah. like, <laughs> or Disney Plus in six yeah, months. Yeah, but like toggling between apps is not that hard. It is kind of annoying sometimes when you're trying, maybe if you don't write about TV for a living, if you're trying to remember, wait, which Which app one's has, on which channel? Yeah, yeah, and like, is there a new episode of X this week? Yeah. And, you know, wait, whatever. With the Netflix thing, does that mean, so I have like an older Apple TV. Yeah. And it has like a Netflix button or whatever. Yeah. Is that not going to be on <laughs> Apple Hickey? TV anymore? No, it will. It's just it won't be like integrated into their like landing page. It won't page. be in the You'll TV. You'll just have to go app. to Netflix. To go but like the, the Hulu button, if were if it were, or, or like the HBO Go button will all be under one app. It's just Netflix will be the only one pretty much that will be right. outside so, okay. of it. Everything will be in one made feed except right. for Netflix. Right. Yeah. So if I want to watch season one of Gypsy again, I'll have to go... <laughs> <laughs> the um the other thing I was gonna say, to, you know, to David's point is like it reminds me a lot of Marvel Studios versus what Warner Brothers tried to do with Justice League, where Marvel Studios is like, here's Iron Man, here's Captain America, here's Thor. Okay, do you want to see them all together? Cool, let's go. Um, Warner Brothers is like, we've got the Justice League right off the bat. You love it. Here it goes. A lot of content. And they're like, whoops, nope, we did not lay track for this. I'm so sorry. And so, like, it's the lack of laying track. But, but like, as as David pointed out, like, when you started Netflix, you had, like, two original shows but a lot of other things to offer. And so for them to come out of the gate spending so much money on all this original programming, I'm just, I'm worried that people are just going to be like, okay, I liked that morning show, but I don't know. I actually, I'm 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 here for the Emily Dickinson, the anachronistic yeah. Emily Dickinson show for some reason. Yeah. I'm here for that, but like I'm here for one thing. And then it's so funny because that's the argument they were making about this new magazine service that they were promoting, which is like, um, we know you only really want to read one magazine article, so out of out of this thing, so why pay for the whole magazine? You know, like they're they're presenting two different arguments in the same presentation, and really just trying to sell you on Apple itself. And I'm like, I, you know, I, I like a lot of what you do. I have a lot of your products, but I don't know that I trust you. I have any reason to trust you to be my TV people. You yeah. Know? I, I was, I mean, maybe this was like a metaphor or something, but I was at the supermarket the other day and uh, ahead of us in line was a, w- a woman who had like a, you know, two big bags full of groceries and she was trying to pay using Apple Pay and it wasn't sure. working. It wasn't reading her thing. And she was like, but I, I and, and, and she le- clearly had left the house with no other ma- means of paying for anything because, and I'm just, it was just like, I don't, I don't know that I trust Apple or really any big company like that to sort of so, um, you know, bind together everything in in a way that you're sort of reliant on them and on only them. I just it it feels. I mean, 
but again, I've been doing that with cable for years, you know. Right. So like it, mm-hmm. but then and then that's why the option of having a Netflix thing or an Amazon thing separate felt sort of revolutionary. But now it's going the other direction where I'm just like, but now it's, it's all getting bundled again. Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, I also think that those Apple events, whatever their product they're announcing, are always so cult-like and creepy. And I think of Dave Eggers' book, The Circle, and right. freak out. Those, yeah, those black and white photos of the stars as they like stood on stage, like in front of like giant shadowy portraits of themselves, was really wild. I think the the creepiest of all for me was, you know, and I wrote about this in my piece, is like, we we were upstairs, so we heard them downstairs rehearsing and clapping. And so when you get into the room, it's like really clear who was there for rehearsal in terms of like how loudly they're clapping and when they're clapping. And like, that's fine. Upfronts has that too. TCA has that too, where they have like their own people in the room. But they were like planted throughout the audience in this really like creepy sort of seated in way that I was just like, this is all... I don't know. It just did not work for me at all. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support that. We support that. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. (laughs) On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mao. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Well, maybe we should talk now about some movies that are not coming from Apple, but would probably be rentable on your Apple TV, iTunes app, whatever we're going to call it, uh, in a year or so. We wanted to talk about just some trailers that have debuted. And we talked about a little bit of this last week in our 2020 Oscar predictions episode. But uh, it's probably a good time to get into detail about how all of these potential Oscar contenders are selling themselves to us. Uh, all of them fairly early. Um, I think the the first big one that we definitely talked about last week was uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So that trailer premiered right after we recorded our episode. We were kind of talking about posters and the photos of Leonardo DiCaprio and kind of like a hairspray-esque set. Uh, and the trailer came out with basically a lot of that. This movie's coming out the end of July. It's from Quentin Tarantino. It's obviously got like a ton of recognition around it. Uh, do we feel like the trailer sold us any more on uh, or any differently on what Quentin Tarantino is trying to do with this Charles Manson story? I mean, I don't really know what the movie's about based on that sort of sizzle reel. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, is it a Charles Manson? I mean, like, I know Charles Manson will be adjacent, but yeah. like, is the actor it going to be playing him, him is not like a terribly famous actor. He no. was on Justified, done, done some other TV stuff. So I, I don't know what that means. There's a weird joke right at the top of the trailer that I'm like, are they boyfriends? Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio? Oh, the carrying his load thing? Yeah, and I was like, what? That's mm-hmm. a weird thing to lead with. You know, if it's... Um, and then Margot Robbie's doing dancing around uh, Sharon Tate. Leo's dancing. Leo's dancing. Plenty of dancing. 
it looks me. I mean, I know it's about Charles Manson, so clearly violence is on its way. But it looks like it's not about people shooting each other necessarily, sure. unlike a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies. So I don't. I'm intrigued, but I'm also a little tired. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies when they come down the pike. You're like, whew, okay, can I handle this? You know, Quentin Tarantino movies usually the trailers usually really lead with premise, like kill Bill. Like you know, mm-hmm. is very like here's what's happening. Here's what she's trying to do. The Hateful Eight was also you know, it's like we put all these guys in a room and they're gonna they're gonna face off. And uh, this trailer is like '60s Hollywood, and we have movie stars. That's it. There's no real plot talk. I mean, yeah. we know it's about a movie star and a stuntman, I guess. Right. No, not even a movie. He's like an actor. He's not a movie star. He's like a... He's on like a Gunsmoke like kind of right, show. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, well, what's kind of... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. I mean, and then Margot Robbie, who... The, they're not saying she's playing Sharon Tate, but we've read... Right. Right. That, like, is sort of just, like, doing some go-go dancing, like, uh, isolated from them. We don't see them interacting. We don't see anything. Yeah. Which is um, fine. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a teaser, what's, I guess. What's a big question mark about it is... Um, the if it is about the Manson murders, like Sharon Tate was quite pregnant when the Manson murders happened, like true. eight 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 months, and Margot Robbie is distinctly not at least in the footage that's in the trailers. There's some like talk that maybe she will be at some point in the movie. So like there's that there's a couple possibilities that came out of this trailer. One is that it takes place over a long period of time. You know, like a couple years at least. Well, yeah, because right? Leo so looks s- pretty worn down at the end. In that that yeah. fight, where he's got right. the long hair yeah. and the beard. Yeah. And, yeah, right. Yeah, so like you know the the rise and fall of someone's career or something like that uh, with the Manson murder sort of backgrounded. Um, the question of the optics of like can you can one background the Manson murders? Can one background the death of this famous woman? She like I think Alana Bennett had a really good tweet about you know this is a this is a story about the murder of a woman executed mostly by women, uh, and this is a story about two men. <laughs> like I, you know I, like what, right. I don't um, think it is a story about Sharon Tate. I think that's no, the I, thing, I, I, right? Yeah, yeah, and and like. Um, her, I think it's her sister who has been like, uh, you know, ha- understandably hackles rig. Sharon Tate's real sister has her hackles up about like all the Manson projects that are coming out this right. year. Um, reportedly met with Tarantino, saw what he was doing and was like, okay, this one I'm not worried about. Sure. So there's the whatever Mary that Heron means. Movie, right? There's yeah. like a Manson movie coming out this month. Yeah. Right, Charlie with, um, Says with Matt Smith. Right. right, right. And then and, The Haunting uh, of Sharon Tate or something. And The Haunting oh, of Sharon Lord. Tate, which is a real, real bad thing. Um, the other the other possibility is that maybe this is some sort of alternate history a la Inglorious Bastards. Right. Some people are like wondering, does does Sharon Tate kill Charles Manson in this one or something like that? Like, who knows? I don't know. Um, and then the other thing that a lot of people seem to be talking about, at least on my Twitter feed, was this depiction of Bruce Lee um, in the film because like from two seconds of footage, it looked like Brad Pitt was like, Brad Pitt's character was getting... Um, you know, a leg up over Bruce Lee in a in a fight, and people were really ticked about that. I think that is, it's way too early to judge what the depiction of Bruce Lee will be in this film. But w- what's true and what's fun, um, my friend and I don't know, maybe yours if you're listening, Lindsay Romain over at Nerdist did a fun breakdown of the trailer of like all the real people who are in the trailer, like Mama Cass is in the trailer. So there's like some fun, like cool real life stuff. If you're up on the period and want to like go frame by frame in that trailer, that's kind of fun. But I think you guys are all right in that. Unlike a lot of other Tarantino projects, we have no idea really what this is about. And that's, par for the course of a lot of large projects in Hollywood these days that they like don't want you to know very much before you see it. But I think 
with a lot of Tarantino stuff, since it can push the boundaries of things, I think that people has has people bracing for impact rather than, um, you know, excited and curious, if that makes sense. Well, with the Bruce Lee thing, I mean, Quentin Tarantino has always been great on race stuff. So <laughs> Lin- Lindsay, Lindsay Romaine, who uh, shout out Lindsay did point out Bruce Lee would, would, uh, would, um, train stuntmen. And that's, yeah. that looks yeah. like that's what's happening in that scene. Right. He was, that, that he yeah. like taught Sharon Tate, um, right. how he, to fight. He would teach like, you the moves. That was yeah, part of his, yeah. part of his sort of, uh, Hollywood career. That was his um, come up. I so, only, yeah. I mean, I sort of knew that, but like Lindsay was the one who pointed that out. Um, but yeah, yeah, right. No, I mean, you know, Quentin, <laughs> Quentin likes to play fast, and Lindsay likes to get right, like push. But how long yeah. has it been? I guess the hateful eight was. Is that 2014 or 15? I forget. You know, that I was, guess it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it was like a few years ago, three years ago, I think. Um, and that one, that was the first Tarantino movie where I just felt kind of drained and exhausted at the end of it rather than like, hey, you yeah. know, there's nobody like him, you know. Well, my whole thing with him and, uh, and I, you know, I, I'm imposing what I want a filmmaker to do on what the filmmaker wants to do, which is not fair, certainly. But like, I think he's still obviously talented, you know, voice of a generation in some ways. Um but I just want him to say more, you know? And I think hatefully mm. it was frustrating because I was like, okay, sure, right, right. we've seen this. This is not about anything. This is nihilistic. It's just like you kind of having a wank and like doing something that should be a stage play, frankly. Um, and my hope in the vagueness for the, of this trailer and the idea that it might be about a longer passage of time than, than normally um, his films deal with uh, is that there could be some emotional core to it. And I, because th- I think that's what I've been missing um, for, from his movies. There's a glimmer of it in, in *Glorious Bastards*, certainly in Me- Melanie Laurent's character, um, but like really, uh, Beatrix Kiddo crying on the bathroom floor at the end of *Kill Bill 2* is the absolute most emotional that he's ever gotten as a filmmaker. And if that's not his Ken, and he's not interested in that, fine. But like, I would like to see more, certainly more than *The Hateful Eight gave us. And it's also been a while since we've seen you know Leo in a film, right? right. Which and is the so- big selling point. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, uh, you know, exactly what you're mentioning, Richard, like that final shot, you know, it's it's played kind of for laughs, obviously, but it's also like it feels emotionally authentic in that trailer. So like I could see Leo giving us something really, really good in this, obviously. I mean, like it's Leo. Come on. Well, Richard, you were saying last week, I think that the um, smart money is on this movie premiering at Cannes. So I wonder if we're going to get this kind of very intriguing but vague teaser and then the most we're going to learn about it is going to be when you guys get to see it at Cannes and having it filtered through reactions at this festival with all these like international critics. It's, it's a really interesting way to launch a movie that's opening in late July. It's going to be you know competing with the second weekend of The Lion King. Yeah, I think it's pretty <laughs> much sort of unofficially confirmed that it yeah. is going to be at Cannes. And that's the friendliest um, audience he could possibly It's a very friendly team, audience yeah. and it's a funny kind of thing because because, um, you know, Terry Firmo, who runs the festival, has been kind of in the really the last two years kind of been like, you know what, we, we, we've we've gone too deep on like Hollywood stuff and big movie stars. We need to focus more on international cinema, you know, it, trying to kind of change this, the, the proportions of the festival in a weird reaction to how Venice has been kind of turned into this Oscar clearinghouse. But then here we have this like movie called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood <laughs> with two of the biggest like white male American movie stars ever. Um, so it's like, okay, if that's the only splashy thing, you know, from America that they have at the festival, that's, you could do a lot worse. I mean, that's pretty big and splashy. So um, yeah, Katie, I think you're right that like my, my guess would be it premieres at Cannes and then like the next day they drop a full trailer. Sure. Mm. Right. Sure. 
Uh, I mean, there's another uh, title I'm curious about for being at festivals just because it dropped a trailer without a release date. Uh, Lucy in the Sky, we also talked about a bit last week. It's Natalie Portman as the uh, lady astronaut who who made headlines back in uh, 2003 when she got kind of caught up in a love triangle. Uh, it's directed by Noah Hawley, who made Fargo. Uh, it's coming from Fox Searchlight, but doesn't have a release date. Is that something we should like look for at Cannes, maybe? Or is that like we're just going to talk about it all summer and then they'll show up at Toronto? That screams Toronto to me, that thing. Yeah. Um, but I don't yeah. know. Maybe, well, I think Holly maybe is too small for it to be at Venice, but... Um, yeah, like Telluride, maybe? Yeah, Telluride, sure. Right, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a really intriguing trailer, and I think that what interests me more than the Holly aspect, because I like a lot of what he does in terms of the TV series Fargo, I don't like a lot of what he does in terms of um, the other one that I can't remember the name of. With <laughs> Legion. Legion. Legion, thank yeah. you. Um is uh, Natalie Portman has been on this fascinating career trajectory recently yeah. between winning an Oscar for Black Swan where she's like insane in it and then doing this crazy performance in Jackie that I think she pulls off really well. Yep. Then Vox Lux where she's, I mean, she's done little stuff in between those things, but um, Vox Lux where she's playing this like Staten Island pop star, like it's a crazy performance, <laughs> but I think it's so good. Um, and Annihilation. Oh, Annihilation, so yeah. Annihilation is a little more muted, but, but a very interesting, odd movie. So I think she's on this interesting trajectory and this seems like with her, very strange haircut and mm-hmm. like the intensity of the story. And I don't she's know. She's doing how, an accent again. She's doing right? an accent. It's a new accent. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm in, I'm intrigued for that alone. Um, I I don't know that. Um, you know, I don't know really know where the broader industry is on like is on her right now. Like I I think people sure like still remain fans, but her work of late has been a little bit alienating for some, and so I think people start to resent that over time. Um, so I'll be curious, but I'm I'm all I'm all in. Right. Yeah, the fact that she got a nomination for Jackie, which is a movie that like really struggled to find a fans, I liked it a lot too. Um, I, mean, I guess it says something about her continued power as a you know a list movie star. Yeah, I mean, she was an Oscar winner playing Jackie Kennedy. I mean, she sort of had money in the bank. But you're right, that movie ended up alienating everyone, even though it rules. But uh, yeah, she has. You're right, Richard. That like, there's the Pattinson zone where it's like. Can can you just not make one for them? You know what I mean. Right. Where it's like eight right. for you, yeah. and and, and, you know, <laughs> and I love like what Robert Pattinson or Kristen Stewart or whoever you know these you know these uh, bankable stars just end up are like I'm going to Eurozone. I'm going to make art films only. Yeah. You know Brady but, uh, Corbett and I are getting on a KLM flight <laughs> right. to, to Amsterdam and but, see you later. I mean I don't think Natalie has probably hasn't made like a blockbuster since like Thor: The Dark World, right? And Annihilation she was like so happy to be in. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Annihilation was an attempt at that, maybe, but I think sure, that maybe, sure. like, you know, given, like, who directed it and what it was about and how it was about what it was about, like, I, I, I would, Natalie Portman's a smart person. I'm sure she wasn't, like, thinking it was going to be a $400 no. million movie, you know? The ceiling for Annihilation was, like, Arrival. Yeah. And then Paramount saw it and they were like, ah, yeah, sell this thing to Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two other movies we've gotten looked at recently that um, uh, Richard and David, you guys being at Sundance, got to see sooner. Uh, A24 released a trailer for The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and then Amazon yes. released one for Late Night, the Mindy Kaling, Emma Thompson movie. Let's talk about Last Black Man in San Francisco first, because that's something that you know didn't have a ton of stars. It wasn't like as much on people's radars from Sundance, but it seemed to come out of that festival just like really a lot of affection around it. Yeah, I mean, it stokes that kind of affection. It has this beautiful score. It's beautifully shot. The um, two central performances, these two young guys who are not terribly known actors. One of them is total unknown. One of them is sort of like a guy you might recognize, and not it, an actor, yeah. not a like, well-known guy. And yeah. and the lead guy, the director, he and them are childhood They're friends. They're like pals, and, and they came up with a story together, I think. Yeah, so it has this kind of from-the-heart sort of quality right. to it. Um, past that, 
I think it has some some issues. I think I think it's a bit cluttered. I think that like they tried to do too much. You know, I, I've read in interviews that they they cited Napoleon Dynamite as an influence, which is hmm. never a good thing to read, um, and it shows a little bit in the film. But like. I think it's going to find, I mean, David, you, you, I, I don't know if you agree with me, but I, I think it'll find a passionate fan base. For sure. Um, how big that fan base is, I don't know. I think I, I like it a little more than you. I do agree that it's quite long and it has this sort of very sleepy, intentionally kind of gauzy like tone where you're sort of like, it's sort of lulling you. Mm-hmm. And then it, you know, builds to this ending that isn't like cataclysmic or crazy. You know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a sweet movie with... Um, you know, a, lo- a lot of like promise, but it has this message of like, we can't live in these cities anymore. Like it, it's impossible to even like own a home, let alone like rent a home, like anything like that in places like San Francisco anymore. And like, it's sort of this elegaic, like, you know, g- goodbye to these, like, and that might find some traction this year. Like yeah. I, that does feel like something that people will glom onto. Uh, when's it coming out? Uh, Is it summer? June 14th. Yeah. You know, which I believe is similar to when eighth grade opened last year. Is that what you're going to say? But also, sorry to bother you. Blind spotting also opened around then last Bay year. Area. Sorry to bother yeah, you. Yeah, the bears. The only the Bay Area movie. Um, yeah, my. I don't know if this is the right platform to talk about this, but my um, as a Bay Area, as a Bay Area resident, um, my my roommate wrote a piece on Medium last or last year about like if San Francisco is so great, why is everyone I know like I love leaving it, um, which went hugely viral. And my my roommate has like no official platform, no whatever. It's basically like a blog post. It went insanely viral because it is such a strong feeling, not just in the Bay Area, but uh, in a lot of cities in America where it's just sort of like the people who are born here, who are raised here, can't live here anymore, you know? And, um, and you know, and we're like, you know, white people, like the, the like talk to the non-white communities in the Bay Area and you hear this, this message even louder. So I know in the Bay Area, at least, like watching this trailer, I almost cried, thinking about all the friends that I had who had to like leave to move to the middle of the country because they could not afford to live here anymore. Um, so whether or not the movie actually delivers on that, you know, uh, or whether it is sort of just like empty and dreamy and elegiac, like, I don't know. But like, I uh, like I will tell you, at least the Bay Area, I expect, will be lighting up for this movie. Uh, if not, you know, like plenty of people around New York who feel like they can't live where they in the neighborhoods they used to be able to live in in New York, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Whether or not that will hit with the heartland, I, I don't know. But um, maybe it'll be all the people who had to leave the cities uh, will be interested in seeing it. Yeah. It'll be me right. with my children who I couldn't afford yeah. to raise in New York. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, it is one of the big civic issues of the era right now, you know, in, in, because people moved back into, well, you know, gentrification happened in the last 20 or so years. And, and I, it's, it's really great watching a movie deal with that. And I think that we've seen films recently, um, including Blindspotting, uh, deal with this issue uh, in different ways. And this is a really interesting approach. It's a more poetic, it's a more... Mm-hmm. It's a more weary sort of sad thing. It's not a polemic. It's not, you know, th- th- there's anger in it for sure, but it's not it's not a movie that's kind of trying to like boil the blood and get us to to to, you know, foment revolution or anything. It's more just like, well, no. goodbye, you know. Yeah, yeah it's elegant, not like yeah. uh, angry. And that um, tone, I think it's, it's it's passionate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that, you know, the the emotional sort of core there uh gives it gives it certainly some heft and I think, you know, 
you know, in terms of awards, I don't know if that's it's the kind of movie that really holds Maybe up to that sort of play. You know, that's yeah. eighth grade zone is probably the yeah. ceiling, like Spirit um, Awards. Sure, sure. Yeah. But um, but yeah, you never know if it'll catch on. The Napoleon Dynamite thing you said is interesting. It does kind of have that vibe. Quirky, very, yeah, very yeah. quirky. He's going for quirky. <laughs> I, I liked the yeah. quirky more than you. Yeah. I think it's also a testament to how a beautiful score can really just lift a movie so much. Um, Emile Mosseri, it's wrote, like his wrote first score, yeah, basically wrote the yeah. score, and yeah. and it's 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 kind of referencing Dan Romer uh, from Beasts of Southern Wild mm. or some Max Richter here and there. But like, and that's fine. I mean, because plenty of composers reference each other um, all the time, but. Right. Uh, Without that score, I think that some of the emotional moments don't land as well. But that's okay because that's part of filmmaking, you know. Sure. So, so if it's relying on some of its aesthetics, be it visually or orally, whatever. Um, so many movies do that. So I, I shouldn't ding it for that. Um, something I want to say, you know, I, I'm I'm going to start calling it like the Barrier Film Movement, right? Like you've got Sorry to Bother You, Blind Spotting. You've got Ryan Coogler doing some like Oakland stuff in, in Black Panther. You had um, Jin, this great movie that came out last year. Um, and this is like it's all these actual Bay Area filmmakers coming back to make movies about the Bay Area. Like the fact that Jella Biafra is in this uh, movie about San Francisco, uh, you know, punk Bay Area punk legend Jella Biafra. Like it's just it's I don't know. It's really fun to see, and I'll be curious if it keeps growing and growing, and if we're at the beginning of some kind of interesting movement uh, around Bay Area and filmmaking. I know a lot of um, there are a few uh, filmmaking like production companies and stuff like that that are starting to set up some shop here in the city. So um, I don't know if you'll just see more and more about it. Let's talk quickly about Late Night, uh, just because it's another Sundance hit. Uh, it has kind of a bigger, obvious draw, Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson. And it's coming out in early June, and I'm remembering how last summer was really fun for indie movies with 8th Grade and Hereditary and all these docs making their way through theaters. Uh, late Night seems like great summer counter-programming. Totally. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it. I, I was way up on that movie. I think a lot of other people I talked to were like, you know, that was fun. Um, I, I thought it was great. Um, and I think that, you know, for our sort of you know, awards focus purposes. Like Emma Thompson is really great in it. It's kind yeah, of no, the juiciest role she's had in yeah, a long time. For sure. Um, you know, if, if Streep can get in for Devil Wears Prada, I don't, you know, Tom Thompson's doing a little bit less than Streep was doing in that movie, like in terms of like character work. But yeah, um, but I think it's great. And, you know, it's fun to see Mindy Kaling sort of scale her sensibility up from, t- not, you know, up from television. I mean, it's like a bigger, you know, sp- sort of, glossier kind of thing and I think that she quits herself well um, I think the movie has some great supporting players a couple who are maybe weirdly cast um, <laughs> but, uh, but it has like yeah. you know Reed Scott as like a jerk he's great yeah sure so, like, John Scott's Early a is a kind right, of like exactly. gay jerk <laughs> right he's great yes yeah. uh, John Lithgow is a sort of sadder older oh, guy oh god that's right you know? yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's great yeah yeah um, it's a it's a it's a pleasant movie that actually I do think though you know despite that pleasantness it is also talking about a, a current issue that you know in terms of diversity in the workplace and mm-hmm. how you address that um, and I think in a weird way and in a very I should say specific and and isolated way it comes up with something of a solution which is like the way you get these you know sort of venerable older people to accept diversity in the place that they sort of rule is to appeal to their vanity, you know, and appeal to their sense of relevance. And, and you know, it, that's not a, 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 a cure-all for the whole system, clearly. But, like, within this little world, this little fiefdom, I think that Kaling is like, here's a, here's a, here's a possible way to here's kind of change kind of someone's mind. Here's how it actually works, yeah. right, yeah. 
I I'm less high on that movie than you are, but Emma's so good. Emma's just like kind of what keeps me. Then everything else is a tad broad, sure. which is fine, and it's going to be good in the summer. Um, like it's going to be a, like you say, just a fun broad comedy to like have a good time, like in the midst of all of the. The Marvels and the various other big explosion movies that are coming. I think out it's this opening summer. the exact same weekend as Ocean's Eight did last year. Is that right. like a decent comparison? But, I mean, Ocean's Eight again, kind of you know, it had like the heist. You know, this is a smaller movie. It was you know made independently. I don't mm-hmm. know how much yeah. it cost. You know, uh, and it doesn't have that kind of scale, but it does have like you know a lot of nice New York stuff and uh, on a you know like some genuinely fun kind of location stuff like that. And you know, it's 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 a little glitzy looking. And Emma. I, I just Emma's kind of what just rooted me there. Uh, she she could get an Oscar nomination like easy. I don't like yeah. depend, you know that category gets so hot these days. Like that, I feel like Best Actress is always the most crowded field. But everyone loves Emma Thompson, and it's been a while, right? It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about one last summer title uh, before we jump onto Dumbo. I just wanted to talk about Rocket Man again. I do feel like we have an, a weekly Rocket Man segment um, because last week they did this big glitzy thing where they like invited a bunch of LA journalists to a club to watch 25 minutes of footage, and Taron Edgerton was there. And I'm just continually astonished at the confidence in this thing, the full court press. Like obviously they've got Bohemian Rhapsody as an example of just how big yes. something like this can be. That's where um, the confidence is coming from. That thing's yeah. about to make a billion dollars. Well, it, but it also has to be. Good enough, right? Like if it's, I mean, I guess Bohemian Rhapsody. No. <laughs> Not at all. Does, well, David, you haven't been on to talk about this every week. Like, are you, well, sure. how are you feeling about this movie at this point? I think it looks pretty good. I like Elton John a lot. Like, I am really in the bag for that movie. I like, I also enjoy Taron Egerton. Like, you know, I... Yeah. I find him charming. Not Richard. Yeah, no. no, I maybe I'm not a, like a Richard. If Richard's a ten, I'm a seven and a half, right? On, on Taron, but um, I like the sort of Fantasia element they seem to be pushing in the trailers, and from what I'm hearing about this footage as well, where you like mean the thing with the brooms that come alive. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, I mean, Elton John was, as we all know, a sorcerer's apprentice. <laughs> no, no, just this sort of like, you know, Bernie Tappan was a sorcerer. <laughs> right. <laughs> that we can do um, concert sequences and stuff that have fantastic elements. Like he can like rise off the stage, right? That you can, uh, rather than the Bohemian Rhapsody idea, which is like, let's really try and mimic Live Aid, like beat for beat, sort of movement for movement. Let's sort of have it running as we're filming it to like just replicate it as much as possible. Like, have fun with it, you know. Go go crazy. Elton John was such a showman, especially back then. He was so he was so much about the sort of fantasy element. I don't know. I, I like that idea. I just want to once again say for the record, I have never not been on board for Rocketman, and history will remember me fondly <laughs> when, this, <laughs> when this movie is great. Also, uh, in a gr- other great genius bit of promotion, uh, Richard Madden and Taryn Edgerton did an episode of Carpool Karaoke, which I was able to watch without any kind of like subscription. I've never, I'm a, I've been off Carpool Karaoke for like a really long time because it, it's like there's only so much. Uh, Carpool Karaoke you can stand but Richard Madden Taron Edgerton driving around London doing antics and singing Elton John songs for about 12 minutes was some of the best time I've ever spent on the, these here internets so uh, 
get with it. Richard Madden, not a great singer, is aware of that, is like <laughs> is like very intimidated to be sitting next to Taryn Underton, who is a fantastic singer. Um, and it's just great, great accented fun. But like well, what a what a great use of carpool karaoke to showcase an actor that they're really, really trying to push. Taryn is actually singing. No, really, Taryn yes. is actually singing. No, please pay attention. Taryn can sing. Um, so yeah, yeah and, and you know, in, in terms of Richard Madden, James Bond doesn't have to sing, so he'll be fine. Right. Because um, <laughs> I'm assuming he'll be cast as James Bond. Um, but the one thing that's kind of I think um, dampening this fun uh, in my in my anticipation for the movie is this these reports that Paramount has been trying has been in a fight with the producers about cutting one eh, bare butt, you know, right, it, right, right. two men in bed kind of thing. And it's like, good Lord. Like, really? You know, it's Elton fucking John. Yeah, <laughs> like, what, what do we think you. he was doing? You know? Yeah. Although, do you, I mean, maybe this is me being too cynical from Oscar season. Like, it just makes me wonder if, like, that got out there just so they could be like, no, it's in there. So when there's, like, two minutes of, like, gay stuff in it, we're like, well, they, they saved it from being totally I mean, triumph, Right. Katie, you're probably right. The sourcing on that, the initial sourcing on that was like a little funky. Though I like, I definitely retweeted about it and I was like, how dare they? While acknowledging like that the sourcing, I was like, what is this? Uh, where is this coming from exactly? Uh, we should say though that like uh, another story this week is that uh, China cut out two minutes of LGBT content from Bohemian Rhapsody. And um, Which is I all think, they had to do. Right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think one of our one of our colleagues out there, you probably you want to like uh, wrote up a thing was like, maybe it shouldn't be that easy to cut the LGBT content out of a Freddie Mercury biopic. What do you think? And so my hope for Elton John, I mean, like, uh, uh, you know, to that end, Richard Madden, in that Carpool Karaoke episode, Richard Madden and Taryn Edgerton talk about how much they had to kiss. Uh, and, and they didn't say had to. They were just joking about, <laughs> Want, like, to. they were joking about all the stubble rash that they got from kissing each other sure. on this on this uh, project. So I don't think it's just that uh bare bottom scene that double rash that's gonna sell a movie (laughs) i'm rachel martin you probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go there's a host a guest and a light q a but on wildcard we have ripped up the typical script it's a new podcast from npr where i invite actors artists and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions listen to wildcard wherever you get your podcasts only from npr Okay, so we have gathered David here, not just for all of his uh, excellent movie opinions, but because there's a new Tim Burton movie out this week. It is, of all things, Dumbo. Um, And it is continuing Tim Burton's recent trend of just remaking other people's uh, intellectual property. Uh, But people seem to like this Dumbo a little better. David, since you've been in the Tim Burton minds for months, uh, let us know how Dumbo Well, I I should say, just before you answer, David, David is wearing a top hat and a little red waistcoat. (laughs) (laughs) And I have clown makeup on. Yeah, yeah. The biggest the biggest achievement of this movie is that Tim Burton slaps clown makeup all over Colin Farrell and somehow Colin Farrell's more attractive like I don't even know how that works but it, it somehow you're like should Colin Farrell like play the Joker like is that what I want to happen now um, I liked Dumbo um, I don't know if the, you know, the 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 reaction I was getting coming out of the screening was mixed, right? Some people were sort of like, it's fine, he's an elephant. There was a little bit of positivity. There were definitely some people who were not very interested in uh, the exploits of Dumbo, the flying elephant. But um, Burton has literally already done this. He did Alice in Wonderland in 2010. It's the worst film ever made, in my opinion, basically, right? I don't know if you guys agree. It's barely a film. It's barely a film. It's really... Hard agree. Right. Hard it's, agree. it's more of a, you know, I don't know, it's like water torture, that thing. Um, and so we've sort of, like, it's, there's, 
there's literally nothing you would think that Tim Burton, who has become a fairly artistically bankrupt person anyway, uh, could get out of remaking a 65-minute cartoon about a flying elephant that uh, has the racist crows, so you got to lift them out too. So it's probably like a 55-minute cartoon, right? You're not you're working with next to nothing. But uh, I don't know. I like Dumbo. He he there. He's a little misfit. He's a little Tim Burton guy. Like he's got big ears, and everyone laughs at him. But he's he's better than any of them, and he flies around the circus. And then every human actor in it is just dialed to like fifteen or like zero they, or zero. Like it's it, there's no in between. Zero. Yes. Like yeah. Alan Arkin is in several scenes <laughs> oh. in this wild performance where he has one line. I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but he has right. one line where you're like, "Is this about the movie?" <laughs> Um, and Danny DeVito is doing this crazy thing. I think DeVito's great. The DeVito's children very in it, soulful. The children in it are like on nothing. Like the, they, the children like, are bad. Like they're bad. But like when the movie, including Tandy Newton's daughter. Yeah, yeah, um, oh. yeah they're, they're very. Who looks just like her? Yeah, they, she does. They're very like monotone and sort of like Dumbo's a flying elephant. I don't know. They, you know, you kind of don't the girl really like need them. Yeah, well, right. Yeah, she's she's <laughs> right. into science. Right. Um, but like when the film zeroes in on Dumbo, which is this kind of, you know, interesting CGI creation, then yeah, then you get some of that old Burton-y like, oh, it's Edward Scissorhands. It's mm-hmm. like the, it's the kind of moon-eyed, you know, yes. Dumbo has these big blue eyes and none of the other elephants have blue eyes and the ears are great and it, sometimes the ears look like hair. Like, it's just like... <laughs> yeah, uh, Dumbo's a little ingenuish. Like, you know, the, the ear There's might, a coquettishness like, <laughs> yes, to yeah. Dumbo. That, <laughs> Um, and I will say, when he flies, it's kind of glorious. You're like, yes. oh, wow. I think it might partly be like this sort of Pavlovian, like, I've watched Dumbo a lot when I was a little child, and I just like it when Dumbo flies. Like, is it that mm-hmm. uh, rooted, like, elementally in my, you know, movie-going DNA that I just like it when the elephant flies? But I definitely, like, you know, got a little choked up when uh, the elephant flew. I think we like it when... I think it's 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 Dumbo-specific, but it's also a broader thing of... It's just almost always satisfying when the discounted, underappreciated whatever thing, creature, person, reveals this beautiful skill or this beautiful ability, you know, like whatever that is. It's just always exciting. But then what I like about the movie, and I'm sure I'll talk about this more, is like, if you remember, the, the Disney cartoon ends with Dumbo flying. That's it. The happy ending is that Dumbo flies and everything is solved by Dumbo flying. And he doesn't need the feather. Right, and his mom but is reunited with him. what this film presupposes, <laughs> maybe he does. In this movie, you know, Dumbo flies pretty early and then is basically surrounded with, like, a huge glitzy capitalist machine, you know, spearheaded by Michael Keaton, who's the sort of villain of the movie, uh, to try and, like, all right, let's sell tickets off of Dumbo, right? And I could not, there's only, you can only take it as Tim Burton talking about what happened to him. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I could think about it once that mm-hmm. all started firing, like... That hmm. Tim Burton's kind of making fun of himself and making fun of the like Disney machine he got swallowed up into, and like they're like Planet of the Apes. You want to do that? Sure. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll do some apes. So, you know. so, t- so Jumbo flying is Edward Scissorhands, and then everything sure. that comes next is uh, the rest of Burton's career. That's that's how I was taking that movie, and I was sort of like amused that he had literally done it within a Disney remake. Uh, maybe if I cornered Tim Burton, he'd be like, "What are you talking about? I don't, yeah. you know, who knows?" But it was after watching f- five months of Burton movies, like after doing this Burton series Jeez. where I watched all the good ones and then I watched the sort of middling ones and then I watched the truly putrid ones. It was sort of all I could think about. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. So zooming out and looking at now Burton in aggregate and that 
I, I you know that you liked Dumbo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I like Dumbo. And I thought it's that cool Miss Peregrine was a kind of improvement on past work that he'd done. Mm. Um, do you think that there is hope for Burton's arc for his trajectory? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we we thought about him as an Oscar person when we were doing this show because. His early movies, you know, would win design Oscars. Martin Landau won an Oscar for Ed Wood. But Burton was always, I think, not taken very seriously by the Academy and would never really get the sort of big nominations, even as his movies were so well-liked. You know, he was the comic book guy. He was the weirdo guy, right? And then when Big Fish was coming out, that was the moment when everyone was sort of like, okay, this will be it. This will be his serious movie that, that crosses over and it gets a bunch of Oscar nominations. And it didn't. Mm-hmm. Right, it didn't do that well, and it didn't. It only got a best score nomination, and I feel like that's the moment in Burton's career where he's like, "All right, well, forget it. I'll go, you know, I'll go make blockbusters for the rest of my life. I guess every movie will cost two hundred million dollars, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, and it's funny to think, you know, he made Sweeney Todd. He's occasionally trended back into more prestige territory. He made don't the, forget about those big eyes. Those big eyes, they were so big. Um, but uh, you know, most mostly, I feel like. Burton kind of just, he didn't do the Spielberg thing of like, I'm going to keep cracking at this until they acknowledge me. Like, he was just like, forget it. All right. You know. Yeah. It's just so hard. It's it's so hard when your strongest uh, brand is like outcast misfit and then you become like, you know, a billionaire at the center of Hollywood. What can you possibly say? I guess you can talk about this cute little elephant, but like, you know, what do you genuinely have to say on the subject anymore? Yeah. Now you can be James Gunn and get fired from your big thing and then get rehired. Now he's a misfit again. It really that's that's, really that's, is that's a, a good strategy. Change. Right. And I think also, you know, um, I've been listening to the season, David, um, and I'm, I'm, I'll be on the Big Eyes episode oh, in a couple of weeks. Yes. Um, is, is, and Big Eyes is actually kind of an exception to this, but like something about computers and Tim Burton was just a terrible mix. Yeah, I think Mars Attacks is the first one that has CGI. And the yeah. CGI in Mars Attacks is cool. It's fun. But yeah. you can, like, then in the arc of his career, you can sort of see like him being like, oh, I guess most things can be CGI, right? Like, mm-hmm. we can just leave that to the computers. Right. And then you end up with, like, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Alice in Wonderland and these, like, soupy backgrounds. That feel like, placeless. Right. And, you know, and I think there are parts of Dumbo that I wanted to be beautiful. The the sure. film opens with this sort of train journey of this circus train traveling from, you know, South Florida up in, into the middle of the country. Um, but all the landscapes are sort of fake and yeah. the train is fake. And you're like, oh, God. Like, well, and then, like, but toward the end of the film when Dumbo, you know, supposedly moves up in station and is at this bigger circus, it's like all that's very CGI. And I got annoyed at that. But then the actual elephant... It's great. Yeah, they must you have. Know? I mean, they must have spent a ton of money making that elephant. The way into he walks an and yeah. everything. The, 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 you know, it, it's reminded me of not Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, but the, the newer ones um, that's kicked off with the James Franco one, where, where the expressions on their face that they're able to do through motion capture or whatever are incredible. And, and Dumbo really like gives off a lot of emotion. And you just wish that like if Burton could focus on that being the sort of visual wizardry that he does with computers and then everything else could be more practical yeah. then I think you have something that you can really connect to and maybe you recast the kids and do a couple other things <laughs> and have Alan Arkin be in every scene he should be in every scene of every movie <laughs> yeah. doing that character and that performance in my opinion Yeah. can I ask a kind of obvious question this seems more different from the original than most of yes. the Disney remakes like we've seen The Lion King which looks like a shot for shot remake right. Aladdin's not coming far it's not uh, doing I mean, the Jungle just Book have- Beauty and the Beast thing where it's like let's just do the movie again 
Right. Yeah. So, like, did they have to just do it because the original Dumbo is like 75 minutes long and they had to 65 add stuff? 65 minutes long. That's wow, how long it is. Wow. God bless a short movie. Yes. Plus, um, the, plus the crows, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Plus, take out about five it, minutes. Yeah. What if we replace the crows with Eva Green on a trapeze? Are you in? I'm in. <laughs> that's, that's literally just in Burton's Rider, I think, you know? Um, Does this give us any hope, though, that like Disney remakes can be something other than a copy, or is this going to be an exception? I think when you're remaking a more recent beloved movie, you're not allowed to do that, right? Like, that's the Lion King rule. It's like, yeah. this better be the Lion King. People grew up with the Lion King. Dumbo is an 80-year-old movie, so you can mess with it more. It is also very short. The funny thing about Dumbo is, like, it was made because Fantasia was too expensive and they didn't have any money, like, which is funny to think that Disney once was, like, hard up for cash and they were like, <laughs> we gotta, like, really, you know, cut corners on this elephant movie. Um, so that's why it's so, like, simple and sweet and... uh so this is the opposite thing of like you've got this hour long simple sweet movie and the remake of it is this you know it's what is it an hour 50 like you know almost yeah. two hour yeah. much more bloated weird epic but it's weird and interesting at least instead of just being a shot for shot remake so it sort of has that going for it well it was nice watching it and not knowing where it was going. Right, I mean, totally. you kind of know where it's going. Well, but I mean, like, you know, because you we've seen this before. Like, like, get you sent know. to the glue factory. Right, I mean, it's still right. a children's movie. That seems horrifying. <laughs> um, but, so I appreciated that, but I don't actually love what. Right. What I'm, the I new think thing I'm a little uh, higher on this than you are, Richard. Yeah. I mean, I was bored. And I think another thing, you know, that I went in probably, you know, naively on my part was like, I guess I didn't quite realize how much of a children's film sure. it was going to be. Um, and there are parts that are, like, a little scary, certainly parts that are sad, but, like, the... It's less wrenching than the cartoon Dumbo. Yes, it definitely is. It, it's, 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 a, it's a softer sort of sell. I think it's just, it, it's, I would, I would say it's almost like a little pandering, and I, I don't respond to that at all. I have a hard enough time getting into children's films, you know, without that added thing, but... Um, so you think if people are going to see it who are listening, like just go in knowing that like this is a movie for little kids, mm-hmm. and I think for a little kid, there was a kid sitting in front of us who <laughs> I think was pretty into it. Yeah, he was. He was bouncing up and down. At one point, and he talking. pointed at Eva Green and he said, "That's his girlfriend," yeah, yeah. which was an interesting thing to <laughs> and say. And the whole audience laughed. The elephant's always. girlfriend? I don't know. He didn't <laughs> call Colin Farrell's. <laughs> um, Tim Burton's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knows? Here's the true fact about me in this in this year of our Lord 2019. I will watch any Colin Farrell movie. Well, I mean, so. me too. I think you 100%. and David have that in common. <laughs> yes. And Colin Farrell Sorry, is giving yeah. full like sad eye. Colin Farrell here, like he's a, you know, a, a cowboy from Kentucky who lost his arm in the war. Like it's all soulfulness from Farrell. The uh, only time I was, yeah, the only time I was ever on uh, the Blank Check podcast uh, so far has been the has been the Minority Report episode where right. David and I just talked about how handsome Colin Farrell was for about 20 minutes. Yeah, so right. That's there the we go. start of his Hollywood career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that about wraps up this week's episode of Little Gold Men. David, thank you so much for joining. As this airs, there's like it's like 18 more Tim Burton movies in your series, something like that. I don't. I, we're almost near the end, aren't we? Didn't we just post <laughs> Alice in Wonderland? We I think we're we're close. We're closing in on the end of Sweeney Burton. Todd just went up. Sweeney, yeah, with Michael oh, Cerveris, which is great. Yes, it, it, it was so actually cool. fun to talk to Cerveris about it and hear him try to be try to be charitable towards Deb's performance while also obviously you know having some issues. Yeah, well, also being like I did. Bl- I played the cello. With <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, he has a great story about meeting Deb and. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, while well, he was doing Sweeney. Yeah. Sweeney. So it's it's good for a theater nerd, but also the whole podcast is good for movie nerds. So sure. We try to mix listen. it up with these, you know, with the guests and stuff. Yeah. 
yeah, obviously everyone should be subscribing to sure, Blank Check sure, if you are sure. listening yes. to this. Uh, but you can also find all of us at VandyFair.com. I'm back from maternity leave now, so you might see my work now. Uh, welcome back to me. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. Uh, I'm at Katie Rich, Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. At Dumbo Movie. <laughs> and David. I'm uh, David L. Sims. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the most succinct review of the year goes to David Sims. It's fine. He's an elephant. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.